Now, you seem like the kind of person that uh, if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, you would have a couple of remediation programs that you would run. So let me, let me ask you that. When you wake up and you're like, I, I'm not feeling it today. Like, how do you how do you pump yourself up? What do you do? Man, if you mean pump me up myself up for work, like I just have a routine. So I start my morning. Or, or morning. I just I just mean like life. Just, just life. You just, you just like, you know, you feel like you want to pull a Garfield and get back in the cat box, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, you're, but you're like, you want to be more like an Odie, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually every morning starts with a dog walk. So I get to clear my head a mm. bit as I uh, watch my dogs carefree sprinkle the yard. Mm. A little so afternoon spray. Well, you yeah. know, uh, you know that that's that's a uh, that's a good metaphor for just like getting on with improving yourself. That that I find myself. I was even writing this in some document that mm-hmm. um, as I and I guess we'll talk about this in the second half. But as I often tell my seven year old son, you know, he's doing this project, uh, a living museum, which is popular with the kids nowadays. I don't know if you have that up in Donut Land there, but like. Uh, you know, he's, he pretends to be a person and you go up and he like, I guess towards, he's supposed to, he's too young to be able to jolt like an old animatronic robot. But if you imagine a kid doing that and uh-huh. then he's supposed to, uh, he's supposed to talk about John Glenn. So hmm. we had to look up some facts and do things and, you know, we we're working on that this weekend and he, he, uh, he struggles to not just play Minecraft all the time, which is understandable. <laughs> There's, you gotta, you gotta get the, get the, get the gold and the iron. I, I don't know what, what else. I found this cave in there that has an infinite series of zombies coming out. I don't know if that's a bug or a feature, but it's really annoying. Anyhow, I was telling him that, like, you know, if you don't want to do work, the best thing to do is just hurry up and do it so you can be done. That's right. But I don't think that's getting through. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of like getting out in the morning and taking a walk. You should just wake up 30 minutes earlier and go take a walk. It'll probably turn things around for you. Just do it. I'm telling you, I write my best blog posts on dog walks. You mm. know, heads clear. I'm just, yeah. you know... I don't know. Secret to life is perspective this, for me. This, so sometimes watching dogs carefree run around really helps me out. This reminds me. I've considered many times rewatching all of The West Wing just so I can find this one scene where uh, <laughs> it's it's during during the State of the Union address they're working on. There's I think his name is Toby. He's like the chief uh-huh. of communications and kind of chief writer, very moody, like brooding yep, person. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. he, and it's like, I think it's maybe like two days before the State of the Union speech, and he's in a bar playing pool, and someone walks up to him and says, shouldn't you be working on the speech? And he just looks up to them and sighs, and he says, I am working on it. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, that's my uh, life in a nutshell, without the pool. So speaking of, of uh, waking up in a poor state, there was a big mm-hmm. uh, Amazon outage last week. And, yeah, that was uh, great for brand awareness. Yeah, well done. <laughs> for Amazon brand awareness. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I was reading through the uh, the, the the great uh, brief write up they had. First of mm-hmm. all, I was I was uh, I think I was telling you there's certain people that we work with who we need to uh, introduce paragraphs to, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I think I think maybe we should sit down whoever wrote that in and the same thing. It's just just put a break in there. It's it's good. Have a little yeah. paragraph, but it was. Um, it was there. It's it was nice to read their write up. I I like the uh, the kind of honesty in it. There was a bit of like you know as you would do assuring that things are good, but it was basically just like, yeah, we just entered a command wrong, and then more importantly, we're gonna make sure they 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 went over. I'm I'm imagining a safeguard they were gonna put in. Uh, I mean, basically, what they're doing is they're updating some storage stuff on S3, and then because they mistyped a command, they brought down some other ways of managing S3 things. I forget what they did exactly. But it, it, the effect was that it made uh, a lot of the S3 things like reboot probably to fix themselves automatically or something. And then, you know, problems. 
And right. uh, but I, I like the 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 pretty simple explanation that even a uh, you know a uh, uh, old country lawyer like myself can understand. That like it just like they're like yeah we made it so that it actually slows down to do that or we put some governors in there so that if we enter that in it uh, it will catch it or something like that I I, I like the uh, the uh, I don't know sort of just like pragmatic down hominess of it yeah I I can't I still try to put my myself in the shoes of the person who did it though like I took down the internet like it'd be amazing <laughs> to be that yeah. you know operations person who typed that in but you know. I, I think a few things caught people off guard. A, everyone realized how much everyone was using S3. But then it, it also cascaded to other stuff in the data center. Like there were a bunch of Amazon services that were also experiencing a lot of latency. And even if you weren't using S3, if you're using these other Amazon services, you were getting hit. So right. probably good for Amazon themselves to think about, all right, did I have the right sort of circuit breaker stuff in there? Am I failing gracefully among these other services? Why did everything collapse? But the same time they, they recovered in two to three hours which can feel like a lot but show me most enterprises who would recover from what they did in less than a week yeah. uh, and i'll be surprised and and this is also going back to the uh you should just floss your teeth or walk your dogs or do do good behavior and when, when you look at methodologies right like whether it's agile or, or devops or cloud native there's there's this i'm sure there's some like bias that that this is in, in that gigantic thinking fast thinking slow tone but it's sort of like mm -hmm. The first mistake is assuming that you're doing something. <laughs> so, so, so that the thing that we're telling you sh you should change to is, is better or worse than what you're currently doing. And in my experience, you're currently not really doing anything. And yeah. and so, like, it's uh, it's kind of that point that, like, sure, it goes down two hours, but like, what's your uptime? So, it is. Uh, it's nice that they recovered. And and it was. Back. And I I tweeted something last night because for some reason I felt like spending a half hour yesterday checking out some of the. <laughs> The sites that went down, I, w I went to their status pages to see how did they describe the outage. Did they say like, hey, sorry, our service messed up? Or did they just blat flat out blame S3? Which, again, when I worked for a cloud company and we ran a service, I was taught very clearly you don't ever blast your, your technology because these are choices you made that either create a single point mm. of failure or whatever that don't blame your technology. You know, blame the, don't blame the tool, blame the, the person using it. So when I looked, you know, Slack did a good job. They said, look, this service for uploading files is offline. Didn't say the technology. Their service was offline. But then you jump to Trello. You jump to a bunch of others. Yep, S3 is down. Sorry about that. And for me, that, that that's a cop-out. I think you got to take more ownership of your architectural choices that made your system collapse because one of your dependent services was unavailable. But that's just me. And, you know, not to be overly dismissive, I was reading through some... Uh some stuff some 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 description of what's going on out in the industry earlier this morning mm -hmm. and there's there's uh you know I, I came across one of the usual stories where sometime in the past some servers went down and people lost like a million dollars a minute or something while they were That's down right, so right. you know there's stuff that can happen that is definitely terrible <laughs> but, <laughs> right but i think i i think i think more of the uh, again like it's it's figuring out the right baseline or, or the floor and mm -hmm. realizing that uh Things over time improve if you're uh, operating in a fact-based world. Yeah, and at the and, and you know, this is always the reminder too, because it's easy for, especially now, I guess, marketing people to say, "Well, you should just build everything super highly available and shame on you for for hitting outage." But look, you you get the availability you pay for, and some people don't need to pay for extreme nine nines of uptime that they can their business can tolerate an hour of being offline versus paying you know millions of dollars for redundant infrastructure. I get that. But we're still doing amazing things with technology we weren't doing five years ago. You can probably tolerate a little downtime here and there. Yeah, that that would be a fun, uh, you know, uh, IT sort of. 
financial planning thing to do over the course of five years is like write down the uh, the cheapness that you built into the system. And then when you right. get to the point where you're losing like a million dollars a minute, be like, yeah, but we recouped that back at the beginning when we didn't pay right. like $10 million right. over what we should have. So really not a big deal. But uh, of course, no one really thinks like that. No, it's a pesky <laughs> perspective again. Yeah. <laughs> so, so speaking of that, of, of reliability, now one, you know, uh, you can explain what the what this Google Cloud Spanner thing is to me. And two, I've forgotten what the P in cap is, but there was a lot of more fanciful stuff about reliability <laughs> where they're like, well, it's like you get all threes of cap, but not really, mm-hmm. but like sort of. <laughs> which right. so which for, I think I think humans. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think to channel one of my favorite uh phrases from Matt Iglesias of the Weeds podcast, mm. I don't well that's fine, but I don't think that's how words work. <laughs> yeah, I mean spanners some neat stuff. So it's a public beta service from Google. It's it's more or less a database that acts like a regular relational database, you know, SQL syntax, regular acid transactions, schemas, things like that, but that it also supposedly horizontally scales really awesome, which is typically what you equate with a NoSQL database that does sort of consistency algorithms and does, you know, uh, eventual consistency and replication between nodes, that that's not typically how relational databases work. Mm. You scale relational by still having, you know, shared data files or having read replicas that are slightly out of date, but not too bad. So it's been hard to munge these relational worlds and NoSQL worlds if you're trying to get that great consistency story, but also partition tolerance and the availability and those sorts of things. So allegedly, Spanner kind of gives you all things in the cap theorem. And again, I think there are people saying, well, you're not totally getting this or that, but this does look like kind of a big deal. And so definitely encourage people to read that up. There's some databases kind of based on this model that have also come out. CockroachDB is out that also is like this model. So Pretty cool stuff. They Spanner can do some things within the Google service. So this isn't open source. This isn't run this in your data center. This is run this in Google. One of the reasons they can do it is because Google owns the kind of synchronized clock that lets these nodes stay to date. They can have a, a greater consistency because they own the clock. I, I might not have that in my data center. So I think it's one of these you probably won't see their service become an on-prem sort of thing. But Google can do it, which means if you like Google Cloud, you have a really awesome database service that I think gives you the best of all worlds. Yeah, and, and and much like the S3 thing, it's probably better than what you're already using, even though it has the uh, the weird P. And then and then meanwhile, I think I think since last we recorded, there's like a whole series of things. Like there was a, they they call yeah, this the cloud bleed. Like is it people pretty much call every security problem a bleed nowadays? Wasn't there a heart bleed or something? There was. Which, that gets a cool lo- logo, which is awesome. Like I guess if you have a bad enough vulnerability, you actually get a logo, which is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. It's what's what's the name of the uh, of the those, uh, the flayed man people on House of Thrones, those are like the security <laughs> brown brand people. Is it Frey? No, Frey is the bridge people. Anyways. Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, I, now I'm blanking on who, who slices people up. So yeah, cloud bleed, you know, cloud flare proxy problem. Things were apparently leaked for a while. I haven't seen necessarily what this might have, you know, how people got impacted yet. I think it's more of a risk thing, but I think another one of these usual things of, hey, we we pass a lot of things through a lot of proxies nowadays, through caches and DNS and data services and clouds, that you know, you're going to be at risk for these things, even among providers that should be even amazingly awesome at it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, in my mind, if you like summarize these three things to bring in another uh, 
I don't know if it's lateral thinking or something, but like, uh, it's sort of like, uh, there's still a lot of things it people need to do. <laughs> right. Sure. Like, and, and it's a little, it's like, I'm always a, like a little cautious of it being self-serving, being at a vendor, but it's like a lot of what we talk about nowadays is not so much like, uh, eliminating things and bringing in robots, but it's just like improving and making better the way things operate in, in, introducing productivity by changing the way things are operating. But there's still like time and time again, if only in security, but I think also like, like if you were switching all your stuff over to using spanner, whatever that may be, you'd want to like figure out what's going on there. And then if Mm -hmm. you were, if you were designing a a storage thing, you would want to have some, uh, some partition tolerance in, in your, (laughs) your global storage mechanisms. And all of that stuff still requires people to figure stuff out. It's not like uh, the robots just gleefully take over and uh, you're dandy. No, I wrote a uh, a blog post this last week on the Pivotal blog about enterprise architecture and cloud and and how those two may look in the future together. And some of the points still is I mean, cloud doesn't negate the need for enterprise architects any more than it does these other roles, but the roles change and the needs change. But I still need people to make good decisions on connecting stuff and deciding what to use stuff and securing things. So it's it's adopting to the new world, as I think we're going to talk about today and the, the rest of the chat as well. What I liked about that piece is, like, you gave actual recommendations of stuff enterprise architects should do, <laughs> right? Which which I think, yeah. I think I think a lot, you know, when we when we go in and talk with people at large organizations, I don't know, just to give a, a, a useless but, like, rhetorically useful, like, number, I, I think about a third of the conversations are basically like, so what you're telling me is I'm going to get fired. <laughs> right and sure. and and like i i think i think enterprise architects qa to a certain extent operations people definitely like like pmo people and to, and sometimes programmers but very rarely are sort of all they kind of have that fear and i think i think what we as an overall cloud native with a hyphen between the two words uh community like are just starting to do, but that we need to do a lot more of in the next few years is is basically explain like what things all the different roles need to do, right? Not mm-hmm. not sort of like the uh, the desired end state that an organization should look like, and not even necessarily how you transition, but like what are people doing every day? Like what does an enterprise architect do, and how do they fit in doing things? And I think that you know. If, if I'm remembering your post uh, correctly, I mean, it, it, to, to unhelpfully summarize it, it's basically like, well, what, what an enterprise architect should do is help the application teams do better software, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like and start in, actually representing the customer a bit, yeah, not yeah. just what your standards look like. In, instead of focusing on a, a governance role, right, mm-hmm. uh, it's more important to get involved in the process of discovering new and better ways of doing things that are properly risk managed from a technical standpoint to the to the organization, right? So you don't want to enforce standards. You want to come up with new ways and new practices and technologies to to operate and do, which I think is a very like not in the uh, socio political phrase uh, meaning, but it's a very privileged position in an organization that that you get to be the uh, applied shiny object seeker rather than the uh, the UML toiler and, and mm-hmm. enforcer and, and there are even coder who's doing something. Yeah, I mean I, I wrote UML standards when I was uh, an enterprise architect, so I know that I know that world well, but I, I think this as you mentioned, it's we have to be better about showing what these things look like, not just saying here's this magic new world adjust like all right how do i adjust architecture data processes operations so we we can i think as an industry do much better at that Mm. but i think as you talk to customers as we all hear from what real businesses are doing this isn't 
you know, fantasy stuff. These are how companies are trying to become more software driven by having more roles that are invested in business outcomes. You know, what architects aren't just running architecture review boards to tell you if you've, you know, checked all the boxes. It's, hey, if we made life better for our customers, will we increase revenue because we built better software? Hopefully, yeah. yes. Then your, your job still matters. Yeah. As one, one of my, there's many uh, favorite lines of mine in this talk that, uh, Mark at HCSC gave at Spring One Platform, but but as as he said in one line, and is repeated in that uh, that CIO pan, panel that John Grosshandler did with him and uh, Allstate people. But he said, "If we release thirty five times a week, how am I going to get an architectural review?" <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> it's just like the the nature of the cabs and everything's has to change if if that's the end state that you want to uh, get to. So before we get to the mm-hmm. topic, you you also uh, added in. Uh, that that we released uh, Spring Cloud Services, which I which I tell me if I'm wrong. I, and this is in in Pivotal Web Services, uh, I think. But it's basically a way of controlling your uh, I don't know how to describe it. Your intra application communications, how inside your your application, all the services and nodes and everything can talk with each other. Did I get that uh, right? You're you're uh, you're like forty eight percent right. That's which good. Is That's good. Solid. You know, it's a good batting average. So, uh, yeah, so I had that some pivotal news here because I thought this was interesting is so Spring Cloud Services is a and this is available on Pivotal Web Services or Pivotal Cloud Foundry. But it's us packaging up some of the core Spring Cloud projects like Eureka, which is a registry, you know, the phone book for the cloud services, microservices. It packages up the config server, which lets you store configs outside of your app. Also does Hystrix for circuit breaker stuff. And so we bundle it all up. And then when you deploy it, we build the quick infrastructure. It's not hard to do in Spring itself, but we simplify it to actually deploy a config server or deploy a Eureka server. And so where that comes in handy is we also added container to container networking to Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Web Services. What this means is that a container of an app, so let's say I have app A with six instances, six containers. Right now, if that app A needs to talk to app B, I go back through a routing tier and I kind of lose who I am. So I can't do, you know, it just anybody can call app B. What container that container networking does is say, I can have a policy that says app A is allowed to talk to app B over this port and this sort of protocol. That's cool. And so what it, how would I know the freaking IPs of an individual container? That's kind of obscure. So when I have something like Spring Cloud Services and Eureka, when I register my service B, I'm telling it where my services are, what my container IPs are. Mm -hmm. So service A can say, Eureka, I want to call this container directly. What is its IP address? Eureka can tell you that. So it's a nice way to actually have a phone book for all your services that's live updated and cached and things like that. And then it's all bundled up with Spring Cloud Services. And then container to container networking gives you a really secure, nice way to bypass any extra proxies and do kind of secure policy-based communication between different containers hmm. makes sense yep yeah fun stuff that that's the other uh 52 percent that was that's the other 50. To, to fill it in there that's good that's right i'll take 48 that sounds accurate <laughs> that you know i don't want i don't want a controlling interest in being right that sounds exhausting well uh so so i was i i, I brought the topic that we'll have we don't have any a guest this week so as i was alluding to earlier with the um uh the the post that you wrote and what i liked about it giving actual advice I, I've been asked a few times recently to uh, come and give a talk that's basically kind of follows the about the following premises of like, yes, we've read the Internet and uh, we know all the stuff that we're supposed to do to do DevOps and cloud native. And we're supposed to have a unified team and deploy once a week and all of this stuff. But we're currently in a large organization that collectively 
uh, basically doesn't want to do any of that and thinks that it's impossible. And and clearly the ad Adam how do you say adamation that uh, I wrote last year the stop hitting yourself Andy Pattern where I just mm-hmm. said don't do that obviously that didn't work so yeah. <laughs> we kept hitting ourselves <laughs> that's right so so I and 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 I I think I think this is a fair ask and the ask is basically like so can you tell us how other companies like actual things and tactics that they've done how they have gotten better and like moved closer towards doing you know devops is the thing people always want to say so they say devops despite all the uh, all the time we've spent on cloud native with a hyphen sort of like hyping they just say mm-hmm. devops which is fine whatever mm-hmm. uh and they're like so how do people actually switch over to doing devops when uh you know the company the organization doesn't want to like what uh what do you do and you know for because it's because it's uh is it still popular i assume so to uh put a new phrase in front of devops i I've, I've been calling this my impossible devops project uh you know when you're operating in a caustic corporate culture and i'll i'll uh i'll clean it up and share it publicly like i did my other booklet but i've started writing down these things uh in in a little booklet and i'll share it in the the show notes here i think i'll set it up so that if you go to cote.io/cloud3 that uh that you can look it up but i don't know i thought i thought one I would say, like you know, I'm I'm working on this project, and I, I'm curious to hear from people who have struggled through like mm-hmm. doing the right thing in their organizations, and and more importantly, it's not only good to know like what tactic you actually did to make it possible, but it's also good to know I don't know what you would call it a heuristic for giving up, <laughs> like like I think I think in a lot of the O'Reilly Circuit Rainbow and Sandals, like even the the DevOps Enterprise Summit, there's there's this maniacal focus on like just keep working on it and doing it right. But sometimes you should just give up and like move on to other things, right? They, if to use a fanciful term, you should prioritize. So it's good <laughs> to identify when something, some effort that you're working on or change isn't going to work. And it's better to just desert that and move on to something else uh, that you can, you can change. So one, it'd be great to hear uh, in any, any anecdotes people have on that. Yeah, so it's a good topic. You know, I think that's uh, what a lot of us like going to conferences for is to hear stories of other people and how they've kind of gone down these yeah. journeys. Not vendors talking about how their technology will make you awesome when you're frustrated you can't get the last technology in shop. And yeah. so you're just showing the future I can't have. So there is a lot of, of great stuff there on we do see some of our customers talk about. To your point, too, there's sometimes giving up, and there's also just accepting that you'll never move beyond incubation. This will always be a departmental thing that goes fast. Other departments have too much just resistance to change, and either you have to go work somewhere else or accept that you're gonna your work stays local. Yeah. That's probably a tough realization, but it's I think we do the, see that. Uh, the, the Lord's Prayer of Cloud Native, if I remember my Bible <laughs> stuff uh, correctly, or, or the, the fried egg theory. Yeah, like as as an example of it, like uh, like there's one. I think this is the first one that I started writing down. Is is uh, I've come up with a trite way to put it is and is that uh, basically like you can't change organizations. You can only start new ones, which <laughs> which is a mixture of like you know my delightful cynicism and actual stuff that that uh, people we work with have done, and then a bit of like what we were just talking about, like accepting things that that can't work, and so. One of the things that I've noticed uh, organizations do and that they talk about or ones who don't talk about it is they, uh, to use this word literally, they literally set up a separate organization uh, that's doing things in the new DevOpsy cloud native agile way. So they've got their, their hundreds or thousands of people 
operating in their traditional way, their waterfall way or wagile fall or whatever. And the first notion, uh, and also what you would assume, is that, like, we should fix that organization or we should change or transform that organization into doing things in a new way. Mm -hmm. But I think – and this probably isn't universally true, just like anything I say, but, like – it seems like the more successful path is you set up a brand new organization, you know, still under the same like corporate paperwork and everything. Uh, but we, we would call it a labs model. And you, you slowly move people over to this new way of doing things and responsibility over there. And uh, you end up like just having your old organization. Either it dies out or it stays there. But you have a new organization that's often physically located somewhere and examples like with Allstate, it has a different name and logos to it and it has different operating procedures and probably different reporting staff like everything is just different so it's a, it's a tricky way to basically start afresh if you will and i think i think you know also you know as more example of the kind of stuff i'm writing up um so like i said Allstate is the the chief people who have uh, talked about this but there's you know there's certain other large insurance companies and and most other customers they end up setting up this like if if you see some of the uh, the talks from Humana they talk about doing th- setting up a labs as well but the other thing i think and this is from uh uh Doug's talk at um i guess it was Spring One platform he he threw out this number very quickly that that was basically like at least in his experience, about 30% of your staff won't make it over to the new way of doing things. Mm. And so it is like, you know, and, and, uh, I've, uh, I, I, th- I think I did a little write up, uh, in my own blog about, about the idea of the frozen middle after we'd, we'd podcasted about a while ago, like every mm-hmm. now and then, uh, and it seems to be in bars or in parking garages after talks, like I'll talk with other executives and their numbers are usually higher, you know, around 50, 60% or something. And, and it is kind of like, depressing (laughs) but but that that seems to be what a lot of organizations do is they just like if people don't change then change the people to put another trite thing around it and Mm -hmm. and you can't always do that so you often need to just set up a uh, a different organization that isn't uh, doesn't get infected by the old way of doing things yeah and then sometimes you you know accidentally or on purpose have to starve that old organization i've had colleagues tell me about those as consultants that you know there's a new way of working they were brought in to do it the other group didn't want to change their application so the new team just kind of built some services around it they didn't have to interface with the old one and slowly and slowly that old services got marginalized and people you know you can't always have the antibodies infecting everybody else I'm, i'm mixing medical metaphors but in my old job we used to say you'd have the people who didn't like the change if you'd be injecting these changes they would all swarm it and try to kill it and unless you either have amazing proof points or fantastic executive sponsorship, they're going to win because, you know, I I don't know from your experience, I I haven't seen yet what the average runway is for some of those incubated teams. Like it's great to go spin off this other group. How much time do they get? You know, if there's no big results for a couple of years while they set things up, is that going to work or do you have to show results really quickly? What is that? Unless you have some really good air cover from an executive who believes in it. Because I've seen the opposite where, again, you think you have a long runway and it starts to shrink and shrink as your sponsors depart. And all of a sudden now you're left just hanging there and eventually things disappear. So what kind of sponsorship do you need? How do you build it build it broad and deep, not just one person who goes, I love cloud native. And then they go take another job and you're hosed. So how do you build up a, a bunch of people who believe in what you're doing? And more, most importantly, maybe how do you show proof points right away so that no one wants to shut this thing down? I don't know what you've seen there. Yeah, no, no, I mean that's 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 one of my my standard talking points is uh 
there's the uh the pace of change that you do and i think uh i mean i mean I, i'm i'm repeating a little bit of what you're saying but i think the main things that that i found and i like to talk with people about is one like uh it's probably going to take a year before you're ready to like say if something worked or didn't work mm-hmm. and and sometimes it's a lot faster and sometimes it's slower but you know the the sort of case that i use is is yeah, long ago uh by by uh by episodes we we had an interview with tony at home depot and so he's because he's given several talks on this topic he's got a great chart about the uh the um the number of applications that they did over the first year and he's got a good narration about some hiccups that they found and i think what he said in that that when we were in the hallway there with him is that they at the end of the year they had like 130 or so applications and you know, some of them were easy, simple applications, and some of them were like the uh, the paint desk one and the Pro Tools one we talked with them about. So mm-hmm. there's a good mix of them. But, like, you know, you shouldn't expect to convert everything over in a year. So, one, you should have realistic notions about pacing yourself. And I think um, especially if you look at the uh, the pace of change that you see on slide two or three of any presentation from a vendor, it can feel like you need to operate really quickly and do things fast, which – Sure, but like as a large organization, you have a lot more time, and and also to your point, I think it's a lot more important in a existing large organization that's looking to do a new thing to make sure they don't screw it up too bad, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and you you don't want to do everything at once and have big catastrophic failure. You want to prove out to the organization and yourself that it works, and so you want to be a little more slow and steady than uh, than. Uh, doing everything at once or, you know, doing giant things at once. Yeah. I think it's underrated too. And I think you and I have both seen this, the underrated value of evangelism internally. Like Mm -hmm. you can't take for granted that, Hey, we're this funded group. Let's go do our thing. You got to hit the road internally, like two other teams and demonstrate why did this make a difference? What did we have to change? Field some questions, you know, make this less othering of this group that might feel like they're just wearing weird t-shirts and doing their own DevOps cloud push thing. Instead, you've got to sell this. And then, sure, going to conferences. I've, again, I love seeing people evangelize their own things. It helps them hire some of that new blood when some of their existing staff isn't going to adapt. And at the same time, it helps their colleagues see what they're up to. And so I think the evangelism t- sometimes gets undersold as what you need to do because you just can't assume you have this charter. Now just go do it. Look at 18F, even in the government, You know, making sure they're showing what it means to do digital and improve what you're doing in government processing, they they talk about it. They blog. They share information. They share open source tools. You know, you're you're trying to change an entrenched org. I think we have to make sure yeah. you invest some actual time in that. Yeah, yeah. I, this is I I was just typing that in my document as a thing to uh, to write up because I think there are some pretty specific tactics uh, that are useful. And and more broadly, I think your point is is useful as well. Is is the uh, you're going to need to do some marketing. <laughs> And, 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 and I think, I think there's maybe like uh white hat marketing and gray hat marketing. And, uh, the white hat marketing is just like, we did this thing and like, uh, you know, we got a newsletter and we're going to conferences and we're talking about it. And I think I'm, I'm always like slightly baffled is the wrong word. Cause I understand why it happens, but I'm, I'm always slightly saddened. Let's, let's use some Bridget terminology. Makes me sad. Uh, that, that, that like, um, like I talk with companies and like, oh yeah, but we don't we uh, we don't do that. Like they don't let us go talk with with people. And and I try to go over the benefits. Like it's good for like uh, you know hiring. It's 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 altruistic to share with people. It's also good for retention, right? Like there's probably a lot of high performing people who are like, I'm not being famous enough, so I'm going to go somewhere where I can. 
And like, it's just all around good. And the risks are extremely minimal, right? I mean, I guess, you know, if you're like some sort of like, make multiple changes a day, like flash trader on Wall Street, you don't want to go like publish your algorithms or whatever, how, right. how, how you've how you've torqued your networking and flash stuff so that you can get like some millisecond, like, whatever it is, all that mess is. But it's but, the mistaken belief that my technology stack is somehow proprietary exactly. to how my company succeeds, which is so dumb. Like if every customer in the world used Pivotal Cloud Foundry, guess what? There will still be competitive advantages. Exactly. Yeah, it's all it, about how you use this stuff. I, I, I was at a conference recently just uh, staffing the table, and uh, one of the competitors of one of our customers came up, and I was talking with him. They're like, yeah. We love all the talking that we do because we can like understand how they fix how they're they're improving themselves and doing things and like there was a bit of a wry smile with it and you know in my mind I was thinking like well you know you should do that <laughs> right like like there just because someone's going over how they're operating and and doing best practices like it's not really going to make your it's not going to make your competitors' lives easier because it's kind of the whole premise of this whole paper I'm working on it's sort of like. We all know the right things we're supposed to be doing. What's difficult is in your organization how to apply it and how to uh, how to get it to work. No, all that matters is execution. You know, that's why the ideas people don't usually win out at the end. It's a, you got to take that idea and do something with it. So share your ideas and and as you say, make people want to work there or feel like their work is valued because they can share it and they can learn something from these conferences. When someone says, "Yeah, we use that technology too," what did you think about this? It's not just broadcasting it's actually listening when you do these sort of marketing quote-unquote exercises as an architect or an evangelist within your your individual company and team yeah i I was reading the notes from i think our our first ever uh pivotal cloud foundry community Mm. talk up or something and it was yeah Yeah. i i wish i wish i had uh well i don't don't necessarily like traveling so much but i wish i had at least heard (laughs) all that conversation because there was a lot of uh, the bullet points are good but it was mm-hmm. it was awesome to hear to sort of read what uh, what various people were talking about and how they'd been uh, sorting things out. And so, anyways, it's that spirit of like sharing the the knowledge that you have that I think is uh, that I think is helpful. And so, before we wrap up, I'll I'll uh, I'll give one more example of like the type. It's actually two, but they're kind of like uh, I don't know. They intersect with each other well, but it's a good example of like kind of like what I'm trying to find with this. And again, I mean, as always, I'm just trying to troll for content from, uh, people. <laughs> uh I don't know. I, I, hopefully that's, I don't mean troll in the bad way. I mean like fishing. Naturally. You're, you're trying to like, uh, you're driving around with that tiny little motor on the front of your boat, just sort of like eating your kippered snacks with a little funny hat on. And, uh, you got a line in the, uh, the river or the pond or lake, whatever body of water you may be in. Uh, so sure. Uh, you know, uh, there's this pairing thing that Pivotal's always talking about. And uh, there's pair programming, first of all, and then you got uh, you got on 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 the balanced teams or the the all in unsiloed teams that we espouse, right? So we espouse we say we call a DevOps team a balanced team. I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what it, it's a nice term. Uh, and you know you've got developers and design people and a product owner and uh, various other stuff. And the idea is that you have all the roles you need. To, to own the software end-to-end and deliver on a weekly cycle. And so that's a good example of the bromides that we throw out there. It's like everyone's like, <laughs> yes, sounds great. Yes, mm-hmm. I should eat more fruits and vegetables. Thank you. <laughs> um, but one of the practices that people actually do, and, and more importantly that they, they don't do, and they kind of fail at this, is uh, is pairing. And it's not only pair programming, but you pair up with the product owner and the designer, mm-hmm. and pretty much everyone works in pairs. And this has some sort of obvious benefits, 
Uh, one of them is that there's a better diffusion of knowledge and therefore risk management uh, right. of, of things happening, which people will uh, – a lot of these phrases having come up with sort of like cynical people like myself, we have we, – they're all death-based, so there's a bus number, right? Like <laughs> if, if how, many, how many of your, your team could be hit and killed by a bus or severely incapacitated without halting your project? So if you're diffusing this knowledge, you have a, a lower – I guess it would be a higher. I don't know. Your bus number is better. Higher tolerance. At, have to go look higher partition tolerance. Um, <laughs> so there's that. But there's another. There's there's a productivity. There's a few productivity enhancements. One of them is the obvious, just upping the quality of code because it's constantly under review and you and you you can do testing much faster. So there's that. But there's another one that I think is a little more subtle that gets to a larger one uh, that's important, which is the time that people spend syncing up and communicating with each other gets cut. Because they're constantly working with each other, especially if you're rotating people. And so you don't need to have that like three-hour design review meeting where you're communicating what's happening and explaining it to people. And then because you have such a high throughput of people coming up and designing things together, it mm -hmm. even starts to bump up against what we were talking about earlier where you don't need to have enterprise architects coming up with things as much. Because you have two heads and then if you rotate them, multiple heads – like working on the overall architecture and design of the system. But it really is, I think the, the, the key interesting benefit under the waterline is this, this idea that you spend less time communicating and syncing up, which we know from the Church of Bezos, anytime you have to communicate and have a meeting, you're on the path to failure. Um, yeah, I might be. I might have the same amount of communication. I think it's just you're shrinking the cost of it because exactly, it's all full exactly. time. Like I'm, I'm still having all the same chats, but I'm going from like I, I'm interested in this to I'm seeing it in the app in an hour later because someone just took it and CI'd right. it. And that's right. So and, I think that's it's exciting. And so I guess I guess I think about it as less communication because if you're already up to speed because you've been working on something, you spend a lot of time communicating about it, but you don't have to spend all that time bringing someone in a context. And, right. and bring him to it. It's it's like uh, it's like the Donnie pattern from the Big Lebowski, right? Like you don't want to be like a child that's walked into a conversation. You want to like be involved in it and, and have all the context. Uh, and and so, that impacts roles, like you point out, starting to point out in your document that business analysts and others, it's, it's exactly. a different role. Now. And and then and then and then you think about how that spreads to the rest of the organization. Is as you bring these people on the team and pair them up and have them work on on the team. Like you, you break down that communication overhead. And then, and then if you don't need to have all these meetings, that starts to get towards the, uh, the kind of ideal that, um, that Allstate has spoken about and also others. I think, I think, um, I think HCSC has gone over this is like people find that their developers or their product team people were actually not spending the majority of their time actually working. This goes back to my, uh, my dad advice to my seven year old. They're just like doing all this other stuff, you know, syncing up and meeting and like whatever and transitioning. And so also once you pair people up and they have a more high throughput with with um, syncing and communicating, they actually spend a lot of time working and then you just get a productivity boost from that. And this also goes back to my principle that like you should never assume you're actually doing anything uh, if, if you're worried about adopting a new process. Like my suspicion based on my own experience is that like no matter what you're doing, if you try some new methodology and you actually do it, you're probably going to get a productivity boost because you're doing something. Whereas previously you were just kind of messing around. And then, and then finally, so the, the other thing this connects to is um, I was just talking with, uh, with a, with a large bank last week and the topic of offshoring came up. And so offshoring is one of those things where like, uh, I don't know, you're probably stuck with it. 
<laughs> and, and it's also it's also really easy to be a jerk about offshoring, right? Um, and because I think the premise of offshoring, there's some premise of like follow the sun, but I have a pretty strong suspicion that the primary premise of offshoring is cheapness, right? Is basically like it's cheaper to hire people uh, in Eastern Europe or Asia or whatever, and they have the same skill set. And they have the same ability than it is to hire people in in uh, onshore or whatever. And and there's all sorts of issues that result from that. Uh, you know, we might only have like an hour or two of of time to talk with them, and so it's hard to to synchronize both ways, both from your offshore location. I mean, I guess offshore is a state of mind, depending on where you live. But it's it's hard for the two shores to talk with each other and synchronize. And so this issue comes up a lot when we talk about co-location and people working. And based on, I was in a, uh, I, I went to uh, some cloud native roadshows we had in Omaha and Kansas City, and we had the Garmin people who are a customer of ours come talk at it, and they had this issue, and they were saying that there were a few things that they walked through. Um, and first, I'll insert my my first unhelpful one, which is, well, don't do that. Barring that as your solution, <laughs> they they were saying that what they had found is that. Um, one, it's good to co-locate for some regular amount of time, maybe initially for like a month. And, you know, and, and they were saying that it's it's kind of good, whoever the primary person is, for them to go over there to basically – and I'm, read, I'm interpolating a lot in here. And I kind of had this conversation with them that, like, uh, it's good to build up trust between the both organizations. And one of the ways to show trust is to, like, you do – you, the primary people, do the drudgery work of traveling somewhere and uh, giving up being there. So you want to build up that initial trust and and uh, um, also start pairing with them and try to do it remotely. But I think, I think the and, and you do this pairing to sort of like build up trust with them both ways and to kind of transfer skills. And so you might do that for several months and go back and forth and do some pairing to kind of have this diffusion of knowledge. And then I think another pattern that, that you notice is if you're following a a uh, sort of like a, a highly microserviced approach for doing things. Well, if, if you remember the point of microservices, it's like not only all the benefits of SOA, but you're supposed to take advantage of organizational um, problems. One of those being that when you have a silo or a group of people, they locally optimize whatever they're working on and don't pay attention to how it integrates and works with other things. So you should take advantage of that in an offshoring situation. And basically fully partition off the code that you're working on to just that offshore location. And if they're following all the microservices practices, it's not like it's going to 100% solve the problem, but it's at least going to get to them the point where they can be an independent team operating on whatever service they have, and you can minimize the the syncing that you need to do with them. So Sure. So like a balanced team. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or else. Right, right. And and the analogy I was using with, with uh, with the bank last week was like, you know, it's not like Apple, Google, and Facebook and Twitter sit down and co-locate with each other to make sure that the whole internet works, right? Like they just they just sort of like set up a bunch of services and they talk with each other here and there, and mm-hmm. it just kind of sort of all works together. And so like similarly, like you need to set up your teams like that if, if you're going to be truly like set up as, as, uh, as separate teams across the globe. Yeah, which we do with Pivotal, right? We have 50, 60 teams all across different countries who build individual parts of Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Spring and all those things. And somehow they all kind of stay in sync with some light touch, but they're also independent units. I think that maybe is a nice path forward for some of those teams if you can give them some of the ownership of the whole life cycle and not just be order takers from architects somewhere else. Yeah, that's right. 
Well, so that's uh, that's my little preview of what I'm doing there. Mm. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how quickly I can get little bits and pieces of it out. But I'll uh, I'll I'll make sure there's nothing embarrassing in it, and and uh, and make it public for listeners here that they can go look at. And if they have any suggestions, that'd be great. Fantastic. Well, as always, this has been pivotal conversations. You can find the the most recent up to date things, uh, or what does that mean? Most recent up to date things. You can you can find you can get episodes the quickest if you go to uh, if you subscribe to the the feed. You can find us in iTunes and probably other places. Definitely in Overcast. Just search for Pivotal Conversations and subscribe to it. And then we also host everything over at SoundCloud. You can go to SoundCloud.com/slash Pivotal Conversations, all one word. You can go check out all the past episodes and things we've been doing there. I think I've finally released all of our uh, our Red Monk episodes. So you can go see a little playlist of all of that. And then also, uh, as always, uh, we about every week, we post the full show notes for an episode over at uh, pivotal.io slash podcast. And you can find the uh, things we've referenced and little summaries over there. And uh, it's great if you want to go leave us a review or a rating or just recommend us to people. Uh, that's that's always handy so that, so that we're not just talking to ourselves. As delightful and therapeutic as that may be each week. And with that... We'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.